Good afternoon, everyone. In case you were wondering, I was the one who insisted on the sunflowers. <laughs> I think that'd be good for all of us. Um, so, as Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you uh, to tonight's event and to introduce the annual Ingersoll Lecture Series on immortality and not immorality, as once appeared on our advertising poster. <laughs> um, our distinguished speaker tonight is Terry Tempest-Williams, um, who has been writer in residence at HDS this past academic year. So just a little bit of housekeeping before we get uh, underway, if you just turn off all your electronic things and, and so on. So um, first, please allow me to welcome a few uh, very special guests. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Susan and Jim Swartz, who were really instrumental, uh, instrumental in helping to bring Terry Tempest-Williams to HDS, so we're tremendously grateful. A special welcome also to tonight's speaker, um, Terry Tempest-Williams and her husband, Brooke Williams, who have both become important contributors and active participants within the HDS community this past year. Terry's father, John Tempest, is also with us. Welcome. Um, I hear he made attending the Red Sox-Yankees game at Fenway Park a condition of coming east. Um, so thanks for helping turn a 14-1 victory the night before to a 10-7 defeat last night. <laughs> Maybe you could come in the off-season next time. <laughs> um, Welcome also to our faculty, colleagues from other schools at Harvard and elsewhere in the Boston area, as well as students, staff, friends, alums, visitors, and viewers on the computer as we are um, live web streaming tonight's event. So wherever you are, including in the overflow in the Brown Room, we're delighted to have you with us this evening. It's great to have you here. As always with prestigious named lectures, we gratefully acknowledge the donor of the Ingersoll Lectures, the original bequest of uh, $5,000 in 1893 was made by Miss Carolyn Haskell Ingersoll in honor of her father. And the lectures were initiated by the then Harvard president, Charles W. Eliot in 1896. So tonight's speaker, the acclaimed writer and environmentalist, Terry Tempest Williams, is the latest in a long line of internationally renowned scholars, writers, and public intellectuals who have come to Harvard to give this lecture. The list includes um, William James as the second presenter in, um, 18, in 1897, Howard Thurman, Paul Tillich, Victor Turner, Martin Marty, Al Rabato, Tony Morrison, Russell Banks, and last year Marilyn Robinson. So this endowment has contributed a great deal to the intellectual life of Harvard Divinity School and wider Harvard for over a century. So if immortality is on your mind, we can arrange it with an HDS endowment. <laughs> In preparation for this evening's lecture, Harvard faculty have conducted a series of workshops on Terry's books, organized by Professor Charles Stein. In February and March, we had Professor Ulrich, also with us this evening, and Stephanie Paulsell uh, lead discussions on refuge and leap. And just a few weeks ago, Terry herself led a workshop on her book, The Hour of Land. These seminars have been a wonderful lead up to tonight's lecture, which is entitled The Liturgy of Home. So please thank Professor Stang, Ulrich Paulsell, along with the staff of the Office for Academic Affairs and the Dean's Office for their tireless work 
and efforts in support of the workshops as well as for tonight's event. We're grateful to them. Terry states at the beginning of the Hour of Land that, quote, language and landscape are my inspiration. She, in turn, has been our inspir inspiration here at HDS over the past year in so many ways, hosting weekly conversations in CSWR, deepening our awareness of the world around us, and enriching our community in more ways than I can easily mention, not just at HDS, but in wider Harvard. So, Terry, thank you so much for all you've brought to us this year. It's now my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Professor Charles Stang, the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions, who will in turn introduce our speaker. Um, Charlie Stang's research and teaching focuses on the history and theology of Christianity in late antiquity, especially Eastern varieties of Christianity. He's the author of many books and articles on the development of asceticism, monasticism, and mysticism in Eastern Christianity. So images of the lonely desert infinite horizons and stark solitude come to mind when thinking about Charlie's work. Therefore, it seems that he is predestined to introduce tonight's acclaimed author and passionate environmentalist, Terry Tempest-Williams, to deliver this year's Ingersoll Lecture on the Liturgy of Home. Charlie, thanks for doing the introduction. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dean Hempton, for your words of welcome. I don't think David is the first or last to think of infinite horizons when they're in the midst of a book of mine. Uh, an endless horizon ever receding. It's certainly how I feel when I reread them. Let me add my own words of welcome. Good afternoon, friends, colleagues, this branch, uh, visitors. <laughs> From near and far, friends of HDS, old and new, and a special word of welcome to Terry's family, her husband, Brooke, who is no stranger to us here, uh, her father, John Tempest, and his loving companion, Jan Sloan. Thank you so much for making the trip to join us for this event. It is indeed a singular privilege to have been asked to introduce my dear friend and colleague, Terry Tempest Williams. I know that some of you have known Terry for decades either in person or through her beautiful writings. I've come to know her much more recently, just in this past year. Terry came into my life last spring when I learned that she was to be the writer in residence at HDS and that she and Brooke wished to live at the center. She and I sat on uh, either end of a couch for about an hour last April. We spoke about land about wild land, protected land, about land under threat, about the people of lands under threat, and people dispossessed of their lands. We spoke about resources and their extraction, about conservation and expenditure. We spoke about home and exile. And we spoke about politics, which means we spoke about despair. We only whispered of hope. Every so often in life, you meet someone with whom you have a nearly instantaneous connection, an unearned intimacy and trust. And Terry is, for me, such a person. 
although you and Brooke have been in exile here in the Northeast, I'm so grateful that you both chose to make the center a home this year. You both have brought much life and light to me, to the staff, and to the other residents and this entire HDS community. With Terry around, there is quite a lot of laughing and no small amount of crying. <laughs> Sometimes the crying is from the laughing, <laughs> but not always. Certainly in this past year and in these past few months, too many tears have been of sorrow and frustration and too few of joy. I've come to rely on the peals of Terry's laughter and the smile from which they issue, or I've come to rely on her indomitable joy and exuberance. And I don't wish to prolong her exile here by the waters of Babylon, or uh, not at least uh, any longer than she wishes to prolong it, but I do know that I will mourn when she returns home, as she must, to her beloved Zion. If it's not already obvious, this is not going to be a standard introduction. Um, I'm not going to read off Terry's many accomplishments as a writer or as an activist. You know who she is. You know what incredible work she has done. Instead, in the time that remains, I'd like to issue a warning and share a story. First, the warning. As far as I know, Terry is the first to serve as writer-in-residence at Harvard Divinity School. In this capacity and in her role as a resident at the center, Terry has given so very freely of her time and her talent to students, faculty, and staff. Too freely, I worry sometimes when I've glanced at her schedule. Terry is beloved here at HDS and across the street at the center and frankly across the university. She has helped us all forge new bonds of community, strengthened the liturgy of our home, be it the small seminar she's taught this semester with our colleague Matthew Potts, or the intentional community at the center where her tears and her laughter challenge and sustain us all, or the relationships she has helped us forge with colleagues across the university who are as deeply concerned as we are with both the rapacious greed that threatens public land and resources and the global climate crisis that threatens all lands and all lives, human and otherwise. I hope, I very much hope, that HDS will have other writers and residents, but I do think it's only fair to issue a warning to anyone who might be interested. You have some rather large shoes to fill, or in this case, boots. <laughs> now, talk of boots. Are you wearing boots today? <laughs> kind of. Okay. Talk of boots brings me to the story I'd like to share. Here we are at Harvard, a far cry from places like Bears Ears, the Great Salt Lake, or Castle Valley. Sometimes, Harvard seems to carry itself rather haughtily. Just sometimes. It likes to process with full pomp and circumstance, almost as if the Ingersoll lecture on immortality were the only fitting theme for such an august 
institution. I sometimes wonder whether it would have been more interesting and more consequential had Miss Carolyn Haskell Ingersoll endowed this annual lecture on the theme of mortality rather than immortality. Or if not on mortality, then at least as the dean suggested on immorality. <laughs> we might have invited different speakers. But Terry would be equally qualified to address any of the three. Especially if we take immorality to mean non-conformity to the misguided mores of our day and time. In the spirit, though, of learning to laugh and cry at our own pretensions to immortality, individual or institutional, I'd like to close by sharing a story from Terry's most recent and exquisitely beautiful book, The Hour of Land. This is from the chapter on the Grand Teton National Park and features not only Terry herself, but also our honored guest, the inimitable patriarch John Tempest. And this is in Terry's uh, own voice now. Some of you know what's coming. Don't ruin it for the rest. Not long ago, my father and I were hiking to Taggart Lake, a short, lovely walk to the base of the Tetons. As we walked up the trail, we heard a horn blow repeatedly. Around the bend, a man in a Harvard sweatshirt, half crazed with fear, was holding a bear horn out in front of him, pressing the button every 15 seconds or so. A large canister of bear spray hung low from his belt, and numerous bear bells dangled from his backpack. He looked like a one-man marching band. The expression on his face when he met us head-on was one of sheer terror. Good God, man, my father said. You look like you belong in the circus, not in the Tetons. I've been hiking this trail for 70 years and never seen a bear on it yet. Cut the horn. I forget what the hiker said in response, but I do recall my father's parting comment. If I were you, I wouldn't advertise where you went to school. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> I love that story, as I love the woman who wrote it. Terry, I am proud to have played a small supporting role in the liturgy of your exile among us this year, which I hope has also been a liturgy of home, of your second home. I can't pretend to its immortality, but as long as there is a Harvard Divinity School and as long as there is a center across the street I would hope that you and Brooke would find it a hospitable sojourn on your way west. Please join me in welcoming Terry Tempest. -Rick.
Thank you, Jane, for bringing us the exquisite song by Hildegard von Bingen. Your voice, one voice, transmitting the truth of another voice over time. O most honored greening force, you who roots in the sun, you who lights up in shining serenity within a wheel that earthly excellence fails to comprehend. You are enfolded in the weaving of divine mysteries. You redden like the dawn, and you burn flame of the sun. Hildegard von Bingen. Jane Ding brings us her words and her music. Heralding spring, finally. The turning, the greening evoked, invoked, finally, as Hildegard believed that Veriditis was the vitality and vigor 
inherent in creation, the restorative and regenerative truth of nature. It is here, in the unifying power of the divine, where the divine shows itself in the form of growth and faith in what returns. In the beginning was the word. The word is living, being, spirit, all verdant greening, all creativity. This word manifests itself in every creature. Hildegard von Bingen. Earth. Wind, water, stone. Spirit, body, bone. Earth, stars, and the spaces in between. We find our place, a people in place. We engage the liturgy of home. Gratitudes. The Harvard Divinity School has been and is a home for Brooke and I. We have loved being part of this place in this blessed year. We are so grateful for your fellowship and love. And as I look across this room, row by row, person by person, each of us have shared a story, and I am so grateful. My deep gratitudes to you, Dean Hampton, and to Luann for your kindness, your wit, and humor, as you witnessed with my father. Um, I love that with the sage you said as you were inhaling, does this make you high? <laughs> <laughs> And I love that I could say, I hope so, <laughs> so that I can get through this talk. Thank you for your thoughtful leadership and for your soul work. When we first met, our conversation was about peace. Charlie Stank, thank you for your friendship. I can't count the times I've knocked on your door and you've opened it and allowed me to either rant or cry or laugh or tell a story or a joke, um, regardless of the pressures that you carry. What a beautiful director you are and all the ways that you touch our souls at the center. Such a privilege to be a resident there. And Sarah Bin, thank you for your joy and strength, the power of your partnership. Corey O'Brien, the heartbeat of the center. Thank you for your work. 24 hours, we know we are safe, regardless of fire, flood, or famine. <laughs> and to the entire staff of Dory, Ariella Ruth, and Matthew. To Karen Grundler Whitaker, an alchemist, who is overseeing this entire event. This, every detail is hers. And we have been in correspondence for a year. And I'm so grateful for her strength. Her team, Margie Jenkins and Matthew Turner, and my love to Suzanne Rom, who holds us all together. Bear with me, these matter. I am so grateful to the team, my team, my friends, where we have really created and choreographed um, this lecture. To Jane Ding for your voice. Tim Galati for your sound art, Alejandra Oliva, who created these beautiful prayer books in hand, and Chris Berlin and Satigata for the benediction that will be given 
through their music, and the technical expertise of Hal Edmondson, also a resident at the center. This is what community looks like. Their voices and creativity have inspired a different way of being. How to create an open space of reflection and beauty. Susan Schwartz, thank you. Thank you for your faith. Thank you in your seeing a place for me here at a difficult time. And thank you, Jim, for your energy, for your no-nonsense, for you making us stand tall. You are an amazing partnership. And all of us here at the Divinity School honor you and thank you. Your vision isn't just for who we are, but who we can become. And to Scott and Esmeralda, thank you. We understand what family is. And for faith in action, our dear Geraldine Dreyfus. And to my father, John Tempest, thank you for being here. Even though it was the Red Sox. <laughs> <laughs> It was a two-brawl game, and it was worth it. Um, whatever words I have on behalf of wildness, you have given them to me. And you have defined what it means to live in place and the value and virtue of hard work. And I honor you. And Jan Sloan, thank you for redefining family for us. And to Brooke, Thank you for a wild domesticity. <laughs> this you embody. And I want to honor my mentor, Laurel Ulrich, who, growing up, I can tell you as a Mormon girl and then as a Mormon woman, and now as sisters, you have shown me not only what is possible, but what is necessary. And thank you for holding our history. Thank you for holding my history and illuminating it. Matthew Potts in my classes here, I honor the students who are our teachers. And I want to acknowledge our greeters, Mary, Melissa, Steve, Sarah, Adam, Alejandra, as holding this space. And the sage, if you break it up, then the, the scent returns. And this is from our home ground in Castle Valley, Utah. Um, picked at dawn with friends, Mary Kay, who's here among them. Home, the liturgy of home. It is the seedbed of our immortality, the bedrock of our theologies, the Sea of Galilee, the Bodhi tree, the sacred grove, Mecca. We bow, we kneel, we pray. Our bodies, the body of the earth, no separation. Have we forgotten what is essential? Hands on the earth, we remember where the source of our power lies. We are made of dirt and stardust. This past year, on the North American continent, we experienced a solar eclipse on August 21st, 2017. Our family gathered in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, 
in the Tetons. From my journal, sunrise, I put on my eclipse glasses to witness the full circle of sun. The eclipse begins at 9. Totality will be reached at 11.33 a.m., lasting approximately two minutes. Now we wait and watch in ceremony. Bird calls, Clark's nutcrackers, chickadees, and ravens, the prehistoric trumpeting of sandhill cranes. Sage, buckwheat, aster, goldenrod, paintbrush, and harebells, cirrus clouds looking like horsetails, a lingering haze from the fires, the sound of mountain water. Yesterday, in anticipation, I gathered a bouquet of owl feathers found beneath their nest after a short but brutal windstorm. 9.15 a.m., no change. The sun through the lenses of my glasses is an orange burning in a sky of blue. Reading Emerson's words on circles. Quote, the eye is the first circle. The horizon which it forms is the second. Augustine described the nature of God as a circle whose center is everywhere and its circumference nowhere. Consider the circular character of every human action. Our life is an apprenticeship to the truth that around every circle another can be drawn, that there is no end in nature. Brooke is facing the Tetons. We are listening to summer warblers, white-crowned sparrows, song sparrows, and the relentless trills of ruby-crowned kinglets in the lodgepole pines, even as we sit in the clearing. The universe is fluid and volatile. I feel this force this morning unsettled, disoriented, disruptive. The sun and moon are crossing paths, the depth and breadth of their shadows cast, and here we are on earth, watching, witnessing, waiting. 10.27 a.m., the sun and moon are dancing. We are leaving our foundations. The New York Times reports today that because of the eclipse, the United States will lose $700 million in productivity. <laughs> What kind of mind equates the two? <laughs> what is work in the face of awe? 10.35 a.m., bite by bite, the moon is eclipsing the sun. The temperature is cooling. A pair of sandhill cranes fly over us so close, wing beats register as wind. 11 a.m., the sun is approaching crescent shape. My hand is fully shadowing this page as I write. The sounds of insects are intensifying. Grasshopper wings become cards clothespinned to bicycle spokes. The hummings of bees, dragonflies, crickets singing as though it is late afternoon. Gnats have brought out the violet green swallows crisscrossing the sky. Warblers are disappearing in the willows. Chickadees and robins are roosting in the cottonwoods. 11.20, a chill is noticeable. The light is changing, approaching twilight. Less birdsong, less insects. The sun in my glasses is a cosmic smile, now only the sound of water. Stillness. 11.25, the moon is closing the light of the sun. A flurry of juncos take refuge in sage. 11.27 a.m., a halo of light strikes the land like an electrical current igniting the horizon, now a circle. 11.32 a.m., the sun, now a cradle. 11.33 a.m., the sun, a burning bone and ember, the temperature drops, totality strikes. 
Red-tail hawk cries out. A twilight of periwinkle blue overtakes us. A collective sigh from all the humans watching, hidden by brush on the flanks of the Tetons. We rise. We look up, each of us worshiping this cosmic eye. The dilated pupil black staring down at us. Totality, total awe, total joy. Corona, spikes of light dancing around the darkened face of the sun. Nothing I could have ever imagined. I turn to see the mountain's response. Stars appear above their silhouetted peaks. Venus throbs with a luminary pulse above their silhouetted peaks. Wonder, time is ticking through the silences. Deep indigo blue, how long will this last? Please let it last. Light bursts forth, totality is over. I want more. The return of light makes me no longer fear death. This blink of a moment. I could not imagine this in my life. I cannot imagine what will be my death, nor the inexplicable beauty that will continue. We return to our chairs in the opening of sage and watch the wholeness of the sun return. It is this kind of cosmic beauty in relationship to Earth from which we evolve and exist. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is living, being, spirit. All verdant greening, all creativity, this Word manifests itself in every creature and manifestation of the universe. It is commonplace. It is common prayer. Are we watching? Are we listening, hands on the earth, with our eyes raised upward? Are we creating the kind of open space where revelation can occur in the midst of our planetary education, especially here at the Harvard Divinity School? Are we as concerned with being in the world as much as we are concerned with doing in the world? Are we as focused on who we are becoming as what we will become? Are we allowing ourselves to be undone by beauty? It was Janet Giotto who asked me, what is the morality of beauty? I am still pondering that. She gave me a Buddhist koan. As I learned a few weeks ago and had to face Abruptly, what kind of imbalance do I embody when I fall? Fracture my nose and suffer a brain concussion, and while lying on the stretcher in the back of the ambulance alone, my overriding emotion was relief over all I could cancel. <laughs> Have you been there? <laughs> I hope not. Thomas Burton reminds us, quote, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, 
is to succumb to violence. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace." Unquote. This is our pathology, my pathology, of doing instead of being. We are doing people here at this university. If we are serious about changing the world, how might we change ourselves? Quote, the plain fact is that the people does not, excuse me, the plain fact is that the planet does not need more successful people. <laughs> Unquote. Sarah Kantrowitz, a member of our wonderful class, brought us this quote by David Orr in our class that Matt and I are teaching together, learning together on apocalyptic grief and radical joy. We should have known by that title that we were both in for trouble. <laughs> but the world does desperately need more peacemakers, as David Orr says, quote, more healers, more restorers, storytellers, and lovers of every kind. It needs people who live well in their places. It needs people of moral courage, willing to join the fight to make the world habitable and human and humane. And these qualities have little to do with success as we define it, unquote. What are the qualities most needed in this epic of the Anthropocene? where the press of our species registers as a geologic force. One of the first qualities we might seek to cultivate is our capacity to listen. I want to share with you a story, and I've shared it with my class. Sue Beatty, who's a lead biologist in Yosemite National Park, told me this story when Brooke and I had the pleasure of being there on the bicentennial of the National Park Service in 2016. She allowed us to go with her to the Mariposa Grove. How many of you have been there? You know what a sacred place that is. And she told us a story that because of the pressure of her work, because of the responsibility on her shoulders, Two or three times a week, she walks through the Mariposa Grove. These are giant sequoias, 3,000 years old. Imagine what they have lived through and with. She walks through, oftentimes she runs through, to remember why she does what she does. But there was a moment, a time, when she was walking through, and her normal pattern of thought was disrupted. What she heard in her heart's mind was, we are suffering, we are dying, can you hear us? And she thought, I am going mad, and she started picking up her pace, and again she heard, we are suffering, we are dying, can you hear us? And at that point she looked up at the big trees, and she heard again, we are suffering, we are dying. Can you hear us? She went back to her office, did her work, put it out of her mind, went through the weekend, and when she came back to her office on Monday, she gathered her team together and she said, I want a full analysis, a biological reading of the health of the Mariposa Grove. And her staff said, well, we know that they're under stress. We know that we're in drought. And she said, no, I think it's deeper than that. I want a full rendering, core samples, 
soil samples, hydrology, everything. And that's what they did. What they found after a year or so of work was that the trees were in fact suffering. They were dying. And she did hear them. What was wrong? A hundred years of millions of people's feet tamping down their roots. They could not breathe. The xylem and phloem was not happening. What did they recommend? To remove all of the pavement in that grove. That this would no longer be a place of entertainment and recreation, but a place of reverence and restoration. No more trolleys, no more vans, no more cars, no more tourists, but rather seekers. She took her recommendations, both scientific and otherwise, to the director of the National Park Service, the superintendent of Yosemite, and it was approved. And for five years, the pavements were removed. The trolleys stopped. The parking lot removed. It is now a place of reverence and restoration, with a sign that when you walk into that sacred grove of ancient beings, it says, can you hear the trees? This is a liturgy of home. Are we listening? Are we filling our lives with the spaciousness where we can hear the voices of who we live among? Do we have the strength within ourselves to slow down, to reflect and make the necessary changes personally, structurally, and institutionally to create a reverence of place where the life within us and the life that surrounds us can flourish? to embrace and embody, as Karen, you are teaching me, a thunder-perfect mind. Restoration. This is my prayer for each of us. It is also my prayer for the Harvard Divinity School, here, now, in this building moment, as we begin to literally reimagine, rebuild, and restore, and overhaul. How serious are we? The funding is a serious gift. Can we match this gift with the seriousness of our intention as a spiritual community and return to a liturgy of home here, now, where the heart has a legitimate place alongside the rigors of the mind, where time to reflect is as valued and expected as time to read and write and think. Knowledge and wisdom require both. Creativity cannot exist, nor quite frankly can sanity, without open space and quietude. Open space opens minds, open minds, open hearts, we can construct together another way of being. Quote, there is a real world that is really dying. 
Marilyn Robinson writes in Mother Country. And we had better think about that. My greatest hope, she says, and it is a very slender one, is that we will at last find the courage and make ourselves rational and morally autonomous adults, secure enough in the faith that life is good and to be preserved, to recognize the grosser forms of evil and name them, confront them. Who will do it for us? We must do it for ourselves. This is my unceasing prayer. It begins here. This is the liturgy of home. My home is in Utah, and it's complicated. Home always is. But it is also my taproot, where my family lives. Where my beliefs were born where my roots, words are rooted still. It is the source of my joy, and it is also the site of my pain. That is another definition of home, ground-truthing where we live, especially now. When I went home, these are the words that came. Sometimes I think we have a, a sharper rendering of where we come from when we've been away. What is beauty, if not stillness? What is stillness, if not sight? What is sight, if not an awakening? What is an awakening, if not now? Like many, I have compartmentalized my state of mind in order to survive. Like most, I have also compartmentalized my state of Utah. It is a violence hidden, that we all share. This is the fallout that has entered our bodies. Nuclear bombs tested in the desert. Boom. These are the uranium tailings left on the edges of our towns where children play. Boom. The war games played and nerve gas stored in the West Desert. Boom. These are the oil and gas lines, frack lines, from Vernal to Bonanza in the Uinta Basin. Boom. This is Aneth and Montezuma Creek, the oil patches on Indian lands, boom. Gut bear's ears, boom. Cut Grand Staircase Escalante in half, boom. And every other wild place that is easier for me to defend than my own people and species, boom. The coal and copper mines I watched expand as a child, Huntington and Kennecott, boom. The oil refineries that foul the air and blacken our lungs in Salt Lake City, boom. And the latest scar on the landscape, the tar sands mine and the book cliffs closed, now hidden simply by its remoteness, boom. Add the Cisco desert where trains stop to settle the radioactive waste they carry on to Blanding, boom. Move the uranium tailings from Moab to Crescent Junction. Then bury it still hot in the alkaline desert, out of sight, out of mind. This is my home, boom. See the traces of human indignities on the sands near Topaz Mountain left by the Japanese internment camp, boom. President Donald J. Trump will try to eviscerate Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante monuments with his pen and poisonous policies he just did, boom. He will stand tall with other white men who for generations have exhumed, looted, and profited from the graves of ancient ones. They will tell you Bears Ears belongs to them, boom. 
Consider Orrin Hatch's words regarding the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition's support of the Bears Ears National Monument, quote, the Indians, they don't really understand that a lot of the things they are currently taking for granted won't be able to be done if it's made clearly into a monument or a wilderness, unquote. And when he was asked to give examples by reporters present, the senator said, trust me, take my word for it, boom. This is a story, a patronizing story, a condescending story. I see politicians and my Mormon people discounting the tribes once again, calling them Lamanites, the rebellious ones against God, dark-skinned and cursed. That is their story. Racism is a story. The Book of Mormon is a story. Boom. Environmental racism is the outcome of bad stories, a byproduct of poverty. In Utah, yellow cake has dusted the lips of Navajo uranium workers for decades who are now sick or dead. Boom. There is no running water in Westwater, a reservation town adjacent to Blanding. Boom. But we are not prejudiced. Boom. If you speak of these oversights, call them cruelties. We as Mormons are seen as having betrayed our roots and our people. These are my people. Boom. This is who I am, a white woman of privilege, born of the covenant. I am not on the outside, but inside. Boom. It is time to look in the mirror and reflect on the histories that are mine, that are ours. Boom. We are being told a treacherous story that says an individual's rights, our hallowed state's rights to destroy what is common to us all is fine. Boom. The land beneath our feet, the water we drink and the air we breathe, our bodies in the body of the state of Utah are being violated. Our eyes are closed. Our mouths are sealed. We refuse to see or say what we know to be true. Utah is a beautiful violence. The climate is changing. We have a right and responsibility to protect each other. Awareness is our prayer. Beauty will prevail. It is time to heal these lands and each other by calling them what they are, sacred. May wingbeats of ravens cross over us in ceremony. May we recognize our need of a collective blessing by earth. May we ask forgiveness for our wounding of land and spirit. And may our right relationship to life be restored as we work together toward a survival shared. A story is awakening. We are part of something much larger than ourselves, an interconnected whole that stretches upward to the stars. These are my people. This is my home, my beloved people and home. Coyote in the desert is howling in the darkness, calling forth the pack, lifting up the moon. We can choose to stay. We can choose not to look away, to stay with the troubles, as Donna Haraway says. We can bear witness to what is being destroyed and sanctify these sites of devastation by our willingness to stand our ground in the places we call home. We can bear witness not only on behalf of the health and well-being of our species, but all species, from plants to animals to rocks and rivers and a sacred grove of trees called Mariposa. If I am standing on the edge of a uranium tailings pile with dust devils whipping up waste as though it were merely sediments of sand, how might we ritualize this space and honor its power, as dark as it is, as numinous as it is, and match the energy it holds with our own as we mark 
and caretake the sites for future generations, who in turn will hold it for more generations beyond theirs. Our protection as a species lies in the stories we choose to pass on. This too is a liturgy of home. This nuclear guardianship program was imagined by Frances Harwood, a cultural anthropologist, and Joanna Macy, a systems theorist and Buddhist scholar, and Wendy Oser, performance artist and edit editor, whereby each generation takes its turn as a matter of civic service to guard what we have created with the humility, understanding that our nuclear waste will forever be seen for what it is, a dance between shadow and light. This is our story. We are responsible for our story, many stories. What I can tell you is that on those days when I wonder if I can get out of bed, I'm aware of the limits of my own imagination. But imaginations shared create collaboration, and in collaboration, we create community, and in community, everything is possible. Not long ago, I made a pilgrimage to the Fogg Museum of Art. I found the exhibit, maybe you've been there, Inventor, Art in Germany from 1943 to 1955, and I listened to the poet, Gunter Eich's voice, recite his own inventory in his own language during the Nazi regime during World War II. Quote, this is my cap. This is my overcoat. Here is my shave kit in its linen pouch. Some field rations, my dish, my tumbler. Here in the tin plate, I've scratched my name. Scratched it here with this precious nail I keep concealed from coveting eyes. In the bread bag, I have a pair of wool socks and a few things that I discuss with no one. And these form a pillow for my head at night. Some cardboard lies between me and the ground. The pencil's the thing I love the most. By day, it writes verses I make up at night. This is my notebook. This is my rain gear. This is my towel. This is my twine." Unquote. I have to tell you, it created a pause in me, demanding that I consider my own inventory from my own place in the Colorado Plateau, now under siege, a war of a different making. This is my home. This is my place. Here is my valley, an embrace of stone. Some clouds to follow, my feet, my boots. Here I tend shadows, I've traced the dark. Traced it here with this precious water kept hidden from parched mines. In the leather pouch I carry a glass that magnifies things I find and discuss with no one. Disappearing things that I take to my dreams where no one can hurt them when my eyes are closed. The pencil's the thing I love the most. By day it writes verses I make up night. This is my knife. This is my blood. This is my body. This is my stand. Each of us have a home that we naturally intuit and comprehend. We may not live in that home. That home may be taken from us. That home may be occupied. But it still resides in our memory and imagination, complete with our own inventories that become the bedrock, not only of our imagination, but of our consciousness. 
Environmental issues are economic issues, are issues of social justice. I'm haunted by Jory Graham's phrase, the deleted world. A quick thoughtless act, delete. A slow intentional act over time, delete, write, delete, write, delete. Three lines from Jory's poem, Fast. Each epic dreams the one to follow. To dwell is to leave a trace. I am not what I asked for. What might a different kind of power look like, feel like? And can we extend this notion of power beyond our own species? Not a power over others, but a power with others. Not a competitive power, but a regenerative and restorative one. We can, here, now, together, both reimagine and reawaken a liturgy of home. Even as our hearts break over what we have lost, the last northern white rhino, the last rab's fringed limb tree frog, the diminishing herds of elephants, the Everglade kites soaring over sawgrass, and all we stand to lose if we choose to do nothing, bear's ears, a night sky of stars, quietude, a stand of ancient trees in the Mackenzie River Valley in Oregon. We can do something, each in our own way, in our own time, with the gifts that are ours. Stay with me. I have a friend named Sandy Lopez, and she, for decades, lived in the Mackenzie River um, outside Finrock, Oregon. They learned in their valley that land was going to be sold, it was private land, and that hundreds of acres were going to be clear-cut. The community tried to purchase that land in a land trust, no. The community tried to have the land traded to federal lands, public lands, no. <coughs> it was a view shed. It was a homestead, hundreds of acres clear-cut. Sandy Lopez, the only thing she knew how to do was to go up there and witness every tree that was being cut over time, months. Sandy Lopez is a book artist. And she came home, and let me show you what she did. She wanted to create something, a document, for her community, for her neighbors, for the landowner and those who cut the trees. Not in a shameful way, not in a shaming way, but in a loving way to translate what she felt in her own heart. She knew that the Psalm of David mattered to her community. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
She made this Psalm of David as a broadside, letterpress, for each of her neighbors, the landowners, those who did the clear cut. And then she clear cut the Psalm. to show what that meant to her on the ground in the world. Translation. And with every word that she cut out so that it would read, I shall not want down in green pastures, waters of righteousness, and so on. She took those words, put them in a jar, took all of those hundreds of words, thousands of words, up into the clear cut, and lit them on fire. That was her ceremony. That was her ritual. That was her offering. What is this essential gesture for each of us? Wildness is the taproot of our consciousness. Wild minds, open minds. It is the place where our theologies are born, where we find not only our sense of place, but where an ethic of place evolves. March 18th, Santa Cruz Island, the Galapagos of Archipelago. Time, the evolution of time in the Galapagos, a time of unexpected interludes, incantatory moments with fellow species that live somewhere on the edge of an evolving planet witnessed by a party of friends. In the beginning, it is about love. In the end, it is about relationships. <coughs> I am following my thoughts. Creation is not an act, but a process. What is the process? The world is a wobble. We are animals subject to the same laws of natural selection. Has anyone been face to face with evolution? The other day I was eye to eye with a Galapagos tortoise that had spent three months walking from the top of the volcano down to the sea to lay her eggs at night on the island of Isabella. In the slow, deliberate nature of her world, she upholds 12 million years of perfection. Beauty is the origin of wonder. What enables her to live 18 months without food or water? Does a fast predicated by drought or famine become spiritual? What can we do for the tortoise? Step to the side, give her the right of way, kneel. We belong to a landscape of erosion. What is removed and carried away is as powerful as what remains. Wind, water, time, deep time, the world we have known, the world we now know, is eroding before our eyes. Two questions. Where is our grief? And where is our love? If we bring these two hands together in prayer, I believe the world can change. It's already happening. I'm not talking about a cheap hope, as Cornell West calls it, but a hope reimagined and restored. What are the essential gestures each one of us can make that will lead us to these sacred acts? In the beginning was the word. Spoken, sang, ecstatic, sorrowful, our blessed, blessed questions and longings held as an unceasing prayer. This is my living faith, 
an active faith, a faith of verbs, to question, explore, experiment, experience, walk, run, dance, play, eat, love, learn, dare, taste, touch, smell, listen, speak, write, read, draw, provoke, emote, scream, sin, repent, cry, kneel, pray, bow, rise, stand, look, laugh, cajole, create, confront, confound, walk back, walk forward, circle, hide, and seek. Can we recommit ourselves to not only falling in love with our world again, but continuing to fall in love with the world, this beautiful broken world, even as our hearts break. This is our work. What are the spiritual implications of climate change? I am so hungry for this conversation here. I hold these questions in the name of community, not with answers but with a plea and a prayer that we might explore them together here and now at the Harvard Divinity School, not just with our minds, but our full presence as a spiritual community. The urgency demands it. With our hearts broken and our collective consciousness awakened, the beauty and terror of this moment in time with the gifts that are ours, each in our own way, each in our own time, with what we hold in our hearts. Uncertainty is a given. So is the spiritual imperative to keep believing we can make a difference. Finding beauty in a broken world is creating beauty in the world we find. Last fall, I had the privilege of taking Stephanie Paulsell's class on contemplative prayer. She brought each of us to our knees. Susan, I am praying again. One of the images that stayed with me that Stephanie gave us is the gesture of a human being with arms outstretched overhead. That this too is a gesture of prayer and supplication. In the grove of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences behind the Center for the Study of World Religions, there is a tree in this gesture. Two large branches rising upward. From the central trunk, I visit this tree often for guidance, for conversation, for joy, for companionship. Call me mad, you would not be alone. <laughs> This tree is maple. I sought this tree's counsel today. I took offerings and laid them at tree's roots. I listened. What I heard in my heart was so simple. Our roots are your roots. These five words. Our drive for immortality as a species is a creation story. All cultures have them. This is what makes us human. But if we are evolving to a different story, one of interdependence rather than independence, do we have the courage to see our supremacy as a species for what it is, a lack of generosity and empathy on behalf of other, as a failure of faith in the majesty of creation itself? Divine creation. Is earth not enough?
Can we come to see eternal life as a covenant of care for all life on this self-correcting, self-sustaining planet we call home and offer, offer up our shared humanity, animality with all species, plants and animals, fungi and rot, all manner of wonders who inhabit forests, rivers, oceans, mountains, deserts, and cities by our side. Not man apart from nature, writes Robinson Jeffers, but a part of nature. Can we see the world whole, even holy? A few weeks ago, as you know, Judith Butler spoke of the correspondence between Einstein and Freud as they discussed the death drive found within human beings. Yes, we are a violent species. Yes, we are a compassionate species. And she spoke of an antidote to violence that supports the pacifist drive, an antidote that may be found in what she termed the organic world. There is a peace that resides in the beauty and harmony of Earth, interconnected and interrelated. For me, this is more than immortality. This is the throbbing, pulsating truth of life. We can see it. We can feel it, we can touch it, taste it, hear it, smell it, all around us, every day, everywhere. This does not require our belief. This requires our engagement with love and joy and humility. May Earth be our common place, our common prayer, in all its magnificence, diversity, complexity, and uncertainty. May the scientists walk with the theologians, the humanitarians, the lawyers, the business people, my father and me, together here and now. If there is to be such a thing as immortality, let it be in the record of the life that preceded us, the life that sustains us now, and the life that will survive us. The resilience of the prairies, plowed under to rise again. The vantage point of mountains, even though they've been removed for coal. The memories of dragonflies in times of drought. The fluid horizon of the seas. The ancient voices singing in the desert, long after they have gone. The earth rises and rises and rises. This is our history. This is our future. Buddha says, there is only one moment in time when it is essential to awaken. That moment is now. Our roots are your roots. Our voices are your voices. Can you hear us? For the next five minutes, thanks to the curation of Tim Galati and the gifts of Gordon Hempton, we have a soundscape from Canyonlands National Park that persists, insists that life is strong and carries forth its own enduring grace day after day after day. This is the divine creation, who we live among, the fragility and strength of Earth. The voices of Canyonlands will carry us home to Sarigata, through the generosity of our own Chris Berlin and his friends, where we can meditate on these things as a community, as this will be the benediction of this year's Ingersoll Lecture.
in stillness and in reverence with my deepest gratitude and love. May we contemplate a liturgy of home, here, now, together. Coyotes howling in the desert sage of red rocks, ravens, and sunflowers.
Let me rest still. 